Thank you, and good morning. Can you hear me? Is this on? Yeah, brilliant, great. I think I've just worked out that um, if all things go as they should do, this is my last time ever preaching in this building, because we'll be up there. How about that? Better make it a good one, eh? Anyway, compliments of the season to you. Hope you're enjoying uh, the Christmas season and uh, plenty to do here at Gateway. Just under three weeks now until Christmas. The season of mirth and snow and snuggling up next to the fire. Maybe if uh, you're someone who's... Uh, gas company's gone out of business, that might be very true for you in your living room, but um, I hope not. Uh, I'm, I'm personally not a big winter guy. I, uh, I really don't like the cold weather. I grew up in the southern hemisphere, so for me, this time of year, Christmas is about getting a suntan and swimming and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, all of that is by way of introduction into today's sermon, which aptly is about that most summary of uh, activities, about camping. And uh, specifically today, we're going to talk about tents. Well, one, one tent in particular. You know, we've been going through the Old Testament for, uh, uh, and we will be for a number of months. This is week five of that series. We've already worked our way through Genesis. And uh, last week, we looked at the beginning of Exodus. Exodus literally means exit, where the enslaved people of God are exodused from slavery under Pharaoh, led by a man called Moses. God parts the sea, the Israelites go through, and the journey begins out of slavery and into what God has promised them as a land of their own, a land of abundance and bounty and richness, a place, a land where the people of God can lay down roots and inherit the land and live in freedom. And why is God doing all of this? Well, as we've seen throughout the series, and of course the series title itself, it's because from day one, God has been creating a house for his name. We see this in creation, we see it as he forms the universe, the sun and the moon and the sky and the land, and then he fills it with life. And the culmination of this creation is mankind, it's the creation of mankind. And if you recall, God places man in Eden, in a place where he can dwell with his people, where they can dwell together, and uh, all that goes wrong and death enters into the world. Mankind is cast out of Eden. God places angels with swords at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That's going to be important today, preventing mankind from ever again entering the garden and being in the presence of God, because now there's a rupture in this relationship between man and God. And then we see what happens next. Things get progressively worse. We have Noah and the flood that destroys the earth. God rebuilds his people through Noah and through Abraham and through Jacob and through Joseph, who becomes a ruler in Egypt. And he becomes the forerunner of God's people living in Egypt, where many years later they're enslaved and brutally mistreated by Pharaoh. And then we see God's redemption of the Israelite slaves, the ten plagues on Egypt as God defeats the enemies of his people, the Passover as God pro provides the means of escape, the crossing of the Red Sea as God makes a way for his people. And what all of these accounts show us so far is one fundamental truth that upholds all of human history. God loves his people. God desires to have a people who he can love and who will love him and with whom he can dwell. 
and he's going to act on that. And this is what the Bible is all about. And today, we find ourselves three months after the crossing of the Red Sea. These guys have barely dried out. This bedraggled, ragtag bunch of Israelites who've ever only known a life of slavery. They've, they've crossed the Red Sea, and God says that he's going to lead them into this promised land. And he, he leads them through the wilderness, through the desert, as a pillar of fire. That's his presence. And so here we are in the desert, and God brings them to a place called Sinai. Sinai is a, is a place, it's a desert peninsula, and it also has as its focal point a mountain. And it's here at Sinai that God is going to meet with his people and give them the instructions that will transform this, this ragtag bunch of escaped slaves into a nation. Here, they'll receive the rules and the outlines and the structures for how to care for one another, how to organize themselves, how to create and uphold laws that are fair and right how to remain clean and free of disease, and most importantly, how they are to worship. Because all of this is ultimately about God calling a people out who he can love, who will love him, and with whom he can dwell. And this is a really important aspect of the story, because if you think back to why God calls his people out of slavery in the first place, all the way back in Exodus 8.1. This is what God says to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, Let my people go. Why? So that they might worship me. Let my people go free. Not so that they can just go off and do whatever they like. We've already seen time and time again in the story that without restraint and without guidance, without a, a focus for the inbuilt desire for us to worship something or someone, the people get themselves into all sorts of bother. God says, no, let them go. They're no longer going to live in slavery. But when they are free, what freedom looks like for them is for them to enter into and to be in my presence where they can worship me. This is a, a critically important facet of the storyline of the Bible, and we'll explore this more fully throughout the course of the morning. God draws us out to draw us in. He takes us out of slavery. He calls us out of where he finds us. I don't know if you remember a few weeks back, I, I mentioned that the word church, it's a Greek word, ecclesia, literally means called out. We are the called out people of God. And he does this. He calls us out to call us in. He invites and calls us into his presence. That's what he did in Eden. And that's the promise he made to Abraham when he called him out of his own hometown. Abraham, come, follow me. You will be my people. I'll be your God. And I will give you the land in which you can dwell in freedom, the freedom to dwell with me and to worship me. He calls us out to call us in. And the reason why we talk about relationship with God in terms of freedom is because, as I've said up here many times before, we were created by God, for God, as an overflow of his great love. And in all the ways that we fail to recognize that, we're living outside of our original intended design. And that brings with it a clash of purposes. It's our will against God's design, which creates all sorts of problems for us. 
And in that sense, we very often enter into all sorts of emotional, physical, and spiritual entanglements in how we live, which can cause, and often do, types of captivity. If you're addicted to something, or in a broken relationship, or always striving to succeed, or crushed by a deep-seated longing for relationship and affirmation, these are all types of captivity. They are a slavery that we need freeing from. And that freedom is found as we come into relationship with God that we were designed for and find an answer and an end to all these strivings in his affirmation and acceptance of us, just as we are. That's what's on offer to us this morning. And so this is important information to have in mind as we find ourselves at Sinai today, at the foot of this great mountain with the Israelites, because what will happen here will deeply impact the people of God, and it will ripple down through history, even to this morning. Okay, I've gone way too long without looking at some scripture, so let's do that now. And uh, as we do, I want you to try and recall the promises God made to Abraham a few weeks back, who he called out of obscurity, and he promised to love and to be with him, and that from Abraham and through Abraham, a mighty nation would arise to represent God in the world. Let's look at Exodus 19, verses uh, 1 to 8. It says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you, metaphorically, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to go back and speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders and the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded them to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. That's pretty straightforward. God sets the whole scene for what will come in these kind of three things. Number one, remember that it was me who rescued you and delivered you from slavery through the might of my hand. Number two, if you follow me and obey me, then everything I promised Abraham about becoming a mighty nation will be fulfilled in you. Even though the whole world is mine, you will be the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that will represent me in the world. Number three, do you agree with the terms of the deal? And Moses asks the people, and the people say, yes, of course. We will obey you and follow your commands. And so God calls Moses up the mountain And he gives him the Ten Commandments. If you're going to be my people and represent me in the world, if you want to be with me and know me and love me and stay in my protection, then here are the ten overarching guidelines for how to ensure that. And then he fleshes out those Ten Commandments with 52 more laws about social responsibility and justice and care and how to care for one another and about resting well and about sharing properly amongst themselves. And the people say, yes, this is good. And then God ratchets up the whole deal. He says, just as I have promised, I will come and dwell with you. I love you. I called you out of Egypt, out of slavery, so that I might draw you into relationship with me. 
So this is what we're going to do next. We're going to build a house for my name where I can come and dwell with you. That's the whole plan of Bible history. Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I show you. And for the rest of today, we're going to be looking at the significance of this tabernacle that God instructs his people to build and why. Remember, we keep saying that the whole Bible holds together from Genesis to Revelation. It's the unified story of God calling a people to be his own and making a way for them so that he might dwell with them. Now, the word tabernacle is a Hebrew word. It's the word mishkan, which literally means dwelling place. Whilst these people are in the desert and making their way towards the land that God has promised them, this will be his dwelling place with them. This portable tent that goes wherever the people go. And most of the rest of the book of Exodus is about the very detailed instructions for how to build this tabernacle and the stuff that's supposed to go inside it and how to operate inside it once it's built. More or less 16 chapters of this kind of thing. I'm going to read this quite fast because a lot of it. Exodus 25. Make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half high, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece of the cover and two ends. The cherubims have their wings spread upwards overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubims have face each other looking towards the cover. Also, Exodus 25, make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. The cups are shaped like almond flowers, and the buds with blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch. And the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. Exodus 26, Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them. And on and on it goes. Detailed, specific measurements and requirements for this portable tent where the glory of God will reside on earth as a means for man to meet with God. And as we've already seen, inside this tabernacle, there are to be very specific, detailed elements hammered out in gold or made of wood with specific types of curtains that have very specific images on them. And inside this tent, as we'll see in a minute, are all sorts of images of trees and animals and plants and fruit because it all points back to Eden, to the original dwelling place for God and his people. This is what God has been doing all along. And so this is God saying, I love you in spite of you rebelling against me and worshipping other things, which is what incidentally contributed to your enslavement in Egypt in the first place, but I am getting the plan back on track. This mobile tent in the desert, this is a new type of Eden. Just like Eden, it faces east, it's guarded by angelic beings. It contains a tree of life and the law which represents the tree of the knowledge of God and evil, uh, good and evil and so on. This is a place where once again, I will bring my presence amongst you, just like I always intended at Eden. And you are invited in. 
Gateway, if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this. God loves you. God is always looking for a way for you to dwell with him. And you and I are invited into his presence, irrespective. It's good news. That's what this tabernacle in the desert is all about. It's about a place for God to dwell with his people. This tabernacle represents a new type of Eden, a new meeting place, and is therefore another step in the plan of God to restore paradise, to restore Eden, to restore the meeting place between man and God, which happens fully and finally at the end of the Bible story in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 22. Now, on the one hand, we could spend the rest of our time together, me just reading through these architectural details for the tabernacle, but I've spent so much time with architects this week. So um, let me just show you some pictures instead, if that's all right. Because hopefully what you'll see here will help to illuminate why God is so specific about this stuff and what it's meant to represent. When I um, started thinking about this sermon, prepping for it, I kept asking myself, how on earth am I going to help people to get excited about a three and a half thousand year old tent? But if you dial in here, I really believe it'll help you to see something of the nature of God and what he's doing. Okay, here's a bird's eye view of the tabernacle compound. And what's important to note here is that it's divided into three sections. I'm really grateful to uh, Andrew Wilson and Peter Leitart, whose book we're following for the series, for bringing some illumination to me for how all this works. So if you look at the picture, the first thing you'll see is the courtyard where ordinary Israelites could enter in and approach the huge bronze altar. And uh, it's at this altar that you could bring an offering, a, a sacrifice, something costly like grain or an animal. And you would sacrifice it as an offering so that you might approach the presence of God. These are the instructions that God has given in order for man and God to, to meet. And uh, at that altar, a priest would meet you and inspect your offering and would make sure that it was spotless and without blemish because only a spotless sacrifice would suffice in the presence of a holy God. And then you don't actually sacrifice it yourself. The priest does that on your behalf because we as an unclean people can't approach this holy God. So the priest has to offer sacrifice for us. And so that's how it goes. We present our offering, the priest takes care of that for us, and then we leave. We go nowhere near the tent, nowhere near the presence of God, because we need a priest to do for that, to do that for us. Only a priest, only the one with the, the right credentials can approach God for us. And so we leave, and the priest takes the blood from the sacrifice, and he smears it on the entrance post of the tent to uh, demonstrate that sacrifice has been made, just like at the Passover. And then the priest on our behalf can go into the tent. Okay, now we're inside the tent. And the tent is comprised of two sections. You see the picture on the, uh, the screen? The first section, the larger area on the right-hand side, is known as the holy place. And inside the holy place, you'd find three significant things. We're just uh, going to try and zoom in here for a moment. The first thing you'd find would be bread on a table. 
And this bread symbolically represents the kindness and the provision of God for the ongoing sustenance of his people, that God knows what we need and graciously provides it for us. Next, you'd find the altar of incense, which would represent prayer. And that represents that we are invited into a dialogue with God. It's not just about sacrificing stuff. And he's not just a magical genie in the sky who provides for our every whim. But he is a father who invites us into relationship and therefore dialogue with him. And then we've got the menorah the tree-like lampstand that's still used as a symbol of Judaism to this day. And this tree of gold is meant to represent the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And we know that eating from the tree of life brings life. And likewise, as is represented here in the tabernacle, as we come into the presence and place of God, it brings life. Okay, then we're into the final section of the tent, and for this, not even the priests can enter into this area, except except one priest, and then only on one day a year. The most high priest. Uh, He's the only one who can enter into this space on our behalf. This space is called the Holy of Holies, and you can see from this picture there is a, a curtain that separates the glory of God from the priesthood and the people. In this space, in the Holy of Holies, is the Ark of the Covenant. I want to just read you what it says about that from Exodus 25 again. Make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. And make two cherubim, angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread outward, uh, sorry, upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. That's the Ten Commandments. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Okay, here's a picture for you. Inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark. This, this is the Ark. Obviously, it's not the real thing. Indiana Jones is probably out still looking for that. This is just an artist's replica, but it's actually a pretty good one. And inside the Ark are the stones with the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. The law of God, the the word of God. And above that, you can see, there above the ark, in the midst of the angelic beings, where the wings of the cherubim meet, that's where the glory and the presence of God will be. And only one man is allowed to enter into that place, into the presence of God, and represents all of us who are on the outside. And that man goes in and makes atonement for our sin. This was how it was for the people of God. This is the terms they agreed to. This was how they could relate to God. When I was thinking about all this and praying it through, I kept hearing the Lord say to me that what you build matters. That's obviously incredibly relevant to us here at Gateway as we prepare to enter into a building project of our own. Clearly, 
we aren't trying to build a place where God will literally come and dwell, like in the tabernacle, but there's a sense in which we are, because what we facilitate in our buildings is this. It's, it's the church, and it is here with his people, the church, that God does dwell. And this story of the tabernacle, the story of the people of God, it's all about presence. It's all about the presence of God who comes to dwell with his people and the lengths he will go to to enable that. There's a significant part of the tabernacle story that I won't have time to get into this morning, unfortunately, but many of you will know this, that while Moses is up on the mountain receiving all these instructions from God, um, you can take that picture down if you like, Lou, it's not quite ready yet. Um, while, the people are up in the mount, uh, while Moses is up in the mountain and the people are um, receiving all these instructions from God down below, they start to grow restless. Even though it's only been a few days, they say, Moses has just been gone for too long, and we want something to worship. So we're going to make a big, fat, golden calf, and we're going to give thanks to that for bringing us out of Egypt. So right there, in full view of God, God is probably very visible to them as well on top of the mountain. They build this golden idol, and they start to worship it. And of course, this deeply grieves God, and he is most displeased and Moses has to spend time praying and asking God's forgiveness for this. It's, it's really the low point in Israel's history. And the people get that it's the low point in the history, and they're deeply sorry too. They've just agreed to the law, and they've started out by breaking the first three commandments within days of receiving them. And it says that God forgives them. And I find it remarkable that the very next thing that God does is continue to give Moses the instructions, these detailed instructions, for how to build this tabernacle. Because in spite of all this, God loves his people. And he still desires to dwell with them, with us. That's mercy. That's kindness. That's grace. No wonder he refers to himself in the same stretch of Scripture as being slow to anger and rich in love. That's our God. That picture now, please, Lou, thank you. Here's a, another building project that means a lot to me. If you, if you haven't ever seen this before, this is the Mostar Bridge in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Mostar Bridge is considered one of the most exemplary pieces of Balkan Islamic architecture ever built. It was built in 1557 by none less than Solomon the Magnificent, and it connects the two parts of the city in 1993, during the Balkans War, which many of you will remember, which became known for its brutality and ethnic cleansing and genocide, in an attempt to keep the Muslims out, the Serbian High Command ordered that the Mostar Bridge be destroyed, blown up, which it was. And I find that just beautiful that within three days, people said no, and Spanish engineers had reconciled it again with a temporary cable bridge. And in 2004, it was rebuilt, as you can see, and reopened, bringing together both parts of the city again. And this image means ever so much to me because it speaks so much of reconciliation and restoration. And it's a powerful reminder to me of what I'm going to talk about next. And this has also helped to connect, for me, the tabernacle, this three and a half thousand year old mobile tent of meeting in the desert with my own relationship with God, and therefore how we all might relate to God now as well. Recall at the time of the tabernacle, 
The closest that ordinary folk like you or I could get to God was the outer courtyard. We'd leave our sacrifice on the altar and just back away. And then we'd need a representative, a priest, to go and do our bidding through the blood of a perfect, blemish-free animal smeared on the doorway to enter into the the tabernacle, the temple. And then one guy, only the most qualified priest of them all, could go on behalf of everyone else in the nation to stand before God, be in his presence, and know intimacy with him. But the plan was never just for the story to end there. God loves all that he has made. He loves us, and he has made us to love him and to know him. And so when all went terribly wrong in Eden, he set about restoring creation and mankind back to him. His intention was never that there would only ever be one guy who could relate to him, but he was working out his plan to reconcile all mankind to him. Let me read you some passages from Hebrews 9 and 10 in the New Testament. The background to the book of Hebrews is um, these passages are written to Hebrews who had become Christians in the first century, and they are under immense pressure and persecution uh, to return to Judaism. So the writer talks to them about the tabernacle. He reminds them, and he says, um, he reminds them that in the first century there was a time when this tabernacle uh, existed and had all these regulations for worship, and that there was a curtain separating us all, except the high priest, from the presence of God. He reminds them all the stuff, and then we get to Hebrews 9, verse 11, and we should hear a kind of, as the story just blows up into this multicolored, three-dimensional here-and-now reality for us. And he's saying this to the Hebrews because of what I'm about to say to you. Don't Go back to Judaism. Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, heaven. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption, buys us back. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. That was the law. How much more then? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we might serve the living God? In other words, our high priest, Jesus, has entered into the holy of holies on our behalf. He has made it right by spilling blood, our pure and perfect sacrifice. And he has cleansed the spiritually dirty in so doing. This is what Jesus has done for us. Read with me again, verse 14. The blood of Christ cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. He frees us from the slavish pull of sin and death. He draws us out. Why? Verse 14 again. So that we might worship the living God. 
He draws us in. Freedom from slavery. Freedom to worship. Hebrews 9 goes on. Verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Because of the blood of Christ spilled at the cross for us. Forgiveness. We are forgiven people. Clean. This is the gospel. Remember I mentioned that there was a thick curtain separating us from the Holy of Holies. On the curtain embroidery, among other things, there were cherubim, angelic beings, woven into the fabric. And behind that fabric, remember, was the presence of God. This harks back to mankind's expulsion from the garden. What did God place outside the garden to protect us and separate us from his presence? Cherubim. The curtain is a stark reminder that insofar as the relationship between man and God goes, our sin, which began in the garden, has essentially blown up the Mostar Bridge. God on one side, man on the other. But what happens at the precise moment that Jesus dies on the cross, thousands of years later? The tabernacle no longer exists at this point. That's been replaced by a giant temple in downtown Jerusalem. But here again, there's a temple that separates mankind from the most holy place in the temple. This is Matthew 27 as Jesus dies on the cross. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, he died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. This isn't the type of curtain that you'd perhaps buy at Dunelm Mill that you could tear with your bare hands. This is like a velvet corded curtain. Some historians say that it was as much as four inches thick. And at the precise moment of Jesus' death, it is supernaturally torn from top to bottom, symbolically revealing the way to God, to his presence, and that it's now open to all mankind. And people rise from the dead. Because that's what happens when the power and the presence of God come. If you don't know Jesus yet, or maybe you feel a bit like a a zombie, like areas of your life or your spirit are dead, come to the true tabernacle that brings life and makes a way for you to enter into the presence of God, where hope and life and healing and restoration all find their source. And what is that tabernacle? What is that place we come to as we approach God? The first verses of the book of John tell us. This is John 1, verse 14. The whole Bible holds together. The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Remember I said Mishkan, tabernacle, dwelling place. Same difference. They, they mean the same thing. It's that Hebrew word, Mishkan. Jesus, the Word, the ultimate expression of God, of who God is and what he, was, what he is like, his only begotten Son, he came and he tabernacled himself amongst us. He dwelled amongst us. That's how God has come to dwell with his people. And at the cross, his body broken for us, his blood spilled for us, Jesus tears open the barrier between God and man. Also, verse 14, 
as he tabernacles himself amongst us, what this means for us in the here and now is this. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Can you see what's going on here? We have Eden. God creates a dwelling place for him and mankind. That all goes horribly wrong. And so as an act of mercy and grace, he gives us the law. And the law is the starting point for how man and God will relate once again. God's getting the plan on track. And when Christians talk about, when the Bible talks about Jesus fulfilling the law, this is the kind of thing it's talking about. He perfectly fulfills the requirements of the law and invites all of us in. The Mostar Bridge that we blew up in Genesis 3 has been rebuilt. There is reconciliation between God and man, and we find it through Jesus, the true tabernacle, the true meeting point between God and man, the very means of our dwelling with God. So what? What do, we, what do we do with all of this? Every preacher knows that you should really end your message with a series of pithy applications that, uh, that you can take out into the week. But actually, I think this is too important a message for me to apply my own thoughts to this. Because if you're far from God, or if you're in some way broken, or carrying brokenness, or being broken by the world, or other people, or even yourself... The application for all this actually comes at the end of that passage of Hebrews that I read earlier. So I'm just going to read that slowly, and you can read this along with me and just own it in your heart as it comes up on the screen and know that God is very, very near to you and that he makes all things new. This is Hebrews 10 verse 19 in light of all that we've heard this morning. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, through the curtain, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us then draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised... He's faithful. He is near. He is good. He has you in the palm of his hand. He has made a way for you to be in relationship with him. And just as he always has and always will, he's inviting you into life and relationship with him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be confident to enter into his presence. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that at the moment of your death, we see the temple curtains split, torn from top to bottom. That part of the law fulfilled. The high priest, our Christ, has gone before us, entered into the Holy of Holies, made a way for all of us now to enter into the presence of God. Father, thank you that you have made this possible and that you haven't just fulfilled the law. You haven't just given us salvation, but you've said, come, you're mine adopted us. The highest privilege of all of the gospel is that we are adopted into your family, and we just thank you so much for that. And we thank you that you're a father who receives us, pursues us, longs to be in relationship with us. Lord, I pray that for us today and always, that because of all of these things, we would take confidence. We would call ourselves to confidence to enter into your presence and enjoy you forever and honor you and worship you.
We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.